0: Hey everybody, this is Alex Richter, the Kung Fu Genius, uh, back at you with another episode of Dudes of Kung Fu. For this episode, I interview Matthew Polly, the author of the new biography, Bruce Lee, A Life, by Simon & Schuster. By the time this podcast is out, the book will already be available in fine stores near you. I was very excited to interview Matthew. This is by far the best book I've ever read about Bruce Lee, and spoiler alert, I've read every single one that exists out there. It's very expansive, covers his entire life in detail with dates and all sorts of facts that will capture you no matter what you happen to be into in terms of Bruce Lee. If you're into his movies, it's got everything about the background about that. If you're into obviously the Kung Fu, it's got his whole background, the correct timeline when he learned Wing Chun. It's got everything. It's absolutely fantastic. I really wanted Sean to be on board for this episode, but we had to recorded at around 3 p.m. and Sean has a regular job that poor bastard anyway hope you guys enjoy it and uh we'll hear you guys next week (laughs) bye-bye
1: dudes of kung fu please welcome your host Alex Richter and big Sean Madigan
0: Okay, here we go. So I'm here with Matthew Pauly, the author of Bruce Lee, A Life. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I can't uh, tell you how excited I am because uh, luckily I had the chance to read the book before you came here. Um, But I have to admit, when I met you a few weeks ago and I saw, oh, you have written another Bruce Lee book. uh, Not you personally, like as if you've done it before, but there is another Bruce Lee biography out there. My first instinct was, ah. Another one, all right? Um, but I have to say, um, when you sent it and I started reading it, th- this is by far uh, the most well-researched book on Bruce Lee I've ever read. And to be honest, I've read every single one of them. <laughs> uh, and and um, what I like about it is that, obviously, people who are fans of Bruce Lee, the movie star, are going to love this book because you talk about that stuff and the background about how he made those films. People who like Bruce Lee, the martial artist... There's also tons of stuff in here about his training, how he taught, who he taught, that whole timeline in there, and people who want to know a little bit about his private life and and, and, and these things that are maybe not talked about or maybe only talked about in sensationalistic ways right. um, will also quite enjoy it. So I just want to say um, I thought the book was amazing. Um, what Now, now you've, you've written the book uh, American Shaolin. Yes, right? that was my first book. And also Tapped Out. That's right. And I um, and actually know from the American Shaolin book. That's why when I met you, I'm like, oh, you're the author of that because, of course, I've read that book. Um, what, what gave you the idea to write a book about Bruce Lee? Uh,
1: it started pretty simply after I would finished Tapped Out. Um, that's where I spent two years training with mixed martial artists and got in the cage. Um, I started to search around for a book that wouldn't involve getting my nose broken. (laughs) I didn't want to get hit in the head anymore I was approaching the age where you only have so many brain cells left and it was it was time to preserve those that still remained Uh, and a friend of mine suggested you know you love Bruce Lee he was your childhood hero you should write a book about him and I had the same thought you had which was oh there's so many books about Bruce Lee, why would anyone want to do this? Certainly there must be some good biographies out there that I just hadn't found. And I went and researched it and realized that uh, the only biography still in print was written 25 years ago by Elvis Costello's former bassist, and it was, you know, pretty poorly done. And so my first thought was, no matter how bad my book is, I will be able to clear this bar. (laughs) (laughs) And so very soon what I did was uh, I bought everything, every book that had ever been written about Bruce Lee, about half of them I'd read before, but a lot I hadn't. And I realized there was a ton of information out there. It just hadn't been synthesized into one book. And so that was the first process. And then the second process was realizing um, no one put any source notes. Like there was no, no support for what people were claiming. And so that sent me on the path of having interviews with over 100 different people and trying to confirm stories, some of which are legendary and there's no source material, some of which are kind of hidden and hadn't been talked about because Bruce became such a legend that people were embarrassed by it. And so going through that was a seven-year process of trying to get everything that had been written and try to line it up and see which things were true and which weren't.
0: Right. Uh, Yeah, I have to say that that is um, probably what I think Is most amazing about your book is how it's like you said it's it's everything is synthesized together because you have different books obviously focus on different aspects of his life or career which is fine right but I but there is no comprehensive all in one you know from from cradle to grave so to speak and and that's really what I thought um, made this book not only comprehensive but the style of writing is really great Um, and the fact that you put source notes in it because. You're a man after my own heart. I think I have the only Wing Chun book written with source notes in the back, too, because right. that's always a big thing. There's so much conjecture right. and opinion as fact, but you clearly went through great pains to cite everything where you had you know, gotten your information from. And For anybody who gets the book, uh, I, I would highly, highly recommend not to just read it from cover to cover, but also go back and look at the notes. Because there's a lot of things in there that are also very interesting in terms of not just finding out where your sources are, but there's little extra little tidbits here and there, and I find it it just as fascinating as a lot of the things you put in the book.
1: Just a, a note on that. What I wanted to do was to treat the footnotes in a way like the DVD extras. And so for the average fan who just wants Bruce's life story, they read the book. But for the hardcore fans who know all the stories and have, and want to deal with some of the controversies, you can go to the footnote and be like, oh, this is why he decided to say the Wong Jack Man fight turned out this way. Right? Because there are a lot of things that are still debated, and I had to use my best judgment. And so I wanted the footnotes to be clear. Look, this is what I think happened, but you can take a different take, and this is where I got it from. And if you want to go... Go make your own argument, read these things, and you decide.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, I think that that's another thing, too, is is allowing the audience to make up their own mind on these things. You present the facts, you present the information without trying to skew them to one way or another. Right. Speaking of skewing people to one way or another, have you seen Birth of the Dragon? I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I,
1: I, I howled, I, I saw it in a theater, there was only two of us, and I started laughing so hard. The guy behind me says, hey... Have, have, do you know the real story? And I was like, yeah, actually, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, what really happened? And I was like, Bruce Lee won. I <laughs> right, know. right. Um, but I, what I thought was hilarious is that um, the, the 1993 movie Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, came out with a very pro-Bruce and anti-Wong Jack man. And he was so upset he actually sued. Uh, and that suit was knocked out of court because it was, he was considered a public figure. And 23 y- years later, he gets his revenge, where in this movie, he's this Shaolin saint. And Bruce Lee is this punkish, westernized guy who needs to be tutored by Wong Jack Man in the depths of Chinese philosophy and wisdom. <laughs> right. And so, totally, totally obscured. And obviously, the what I wrote what tries to qu- court a, mil- a middle path
0: between the two of them. Sure, sure. Yeah, it, it's... A- interesting that uh, for the longest time, there really was no debate about it. And then suddenly there was a bunch of debate about it. Um, Obviously, when the fight first came out, Wong Jag Man immediately had something to say about it. I believe one of the Chinese newspapers in your book I read had had said that the fight had gone Wong's way. Um, But for the most part, it it doesn't really seem that besides some of the locals over there, it, it was pretty much undisputed, more or less, that what had happened was what the what Bruce Lee and, and, and Co. Ha, ha, had said for many years and it's interesting that the longer Bruce Lee has been dead, the, the braver people come with their stories about <laughs> what had right. actually happened. right? That's right. Um, you also mentioned another, um, perhaps a lesser known fight that Bruce Lee had. Um, uh, just so you know, I, I went to high school in Seattle, I grew up here on the East Coast, but okay. I went to, my, my parents moved out there for, for work. And so I started Wing Chun out there, and I originally started learning a Wing Chun style that descended from uh, James the Mile and Ed Hart. Oh, so right, I did. Okay. I essentially did non-classical Kung Fu before I right. became, let's say, a more traditional Hong Kong Wing Chun guy. And so um, I was very interested in Bruce Lee, and being in Seattle, had the chance to kind of right. you know, find out some things. And there was a... Um, a fight that Bruce Lee had in the very early days against a Japanese karate expert that um, only a few people know about. I think Jesse Glover only talked about it in one of the, like, Bruce Lee Death by Misadventure documentary. He talks about it. Um, But a lot of people don't know about it unless you read Jesse Glover's very hard-to-get obscure book. Um, Did you actually have a chance to find out if he's still around or do you, do you know do you know if yoichi's like has he said anything about that in, mm-hmm. in a kind of wong jack man type way I,
1: I would love if he were around i as far as i could tell he disappeared off the map i don't know if he's passed away since then um but there's no reference to him after this point like he doesn't appear in any of the literature and so i made a sort of tentative attempt to figure out if he was around but couldn't find anything but yeah he 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 basically has uh he doesn't like the fact that bruce is going around and this is a recurrent theme bruce was uh very revolutionary about the martial arts and he was challenging different styles and at that point he got up and gave a lecture where he said that Kung Fu was better than Japanese Karate, <laughs> and made this more or less, uh, and it made this Japanese Karate guy upset. And he challenged him. And for one of the few times in Bruce's life, he tried to avoid the challenge. I think it's the only time that I can come up with that he didn't immediately accept. And finally, the guy kept at him and kept at him, and so they had a fight. They went to a what the YMCA in Seattle, and and Bruce basically did the chain punches. He he did a snap kick to the knee, chain punch to the middle, blasted him back to the wall, hit him so hard that uh, Jesse Glover thought (laughs) he'd die was screaming, stop, because Bruce kicked him in the face as he fell to the ground. And when Yoshi came to, he looked up to, I think it was Ed Hart, and said, who was the timer for the event? And he goes, how long did it last? And Ed felt bad because he looked at the timer and it said 11 seconds. And so he doubled it and he goes, oh, you made it
0: 22 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great story. It's also interesting how uh, when you write about the conflict with Wong Jack Man, you basically said you know, Bruce was probably looking to have a, essentially a repeat yeah. of that performance. And, and the that, that fight went a, l- um, a little bit differently, went a little bit longer. That's right. um, and of course, you know. I, I suppose to, to some people that, you know, it, it's still out as to what, what exactly happened. So um, another interesting thing you talk about in the book is Bruce's ancestry. So uh, for the longest time, even I believed, uh, very proudly so because I'm half German, that Bruce Lee was kind of like quarter German or something right. like that through his mom. But you actually found out that that was not the case.
1: I had the same thing. Every book says that, that he was a Everybody knows who knows Bruce Lee knows he was Eurasian and they all say that he was a quarter German and this is because I think Bruce Lee believed that Um, and he told his wife that and she wrote it down in her first biography in 1975 and then everyone just copied her. Um, And so the belief was that the grandfather was on the mother's side uh, German possibly Catholic and the mother was Chinese and that's how he ended up a quarter German. And I was digging around through these old Hong Kong websites one day, and I was sort of down the Google rabbit hole, and I got to someone that said, well, actually, his great-grandfather was Dutch-Jewish. And I was like, no, that's not possible. Like, there's no way that that the Bristleys are Jewish, and we haven't known about it for 45 years. Uh, And there was one source to a book that didn't exist anywhere. I couldn't find it, couldn't track it down. And finally, I went to the, uh, it, the only place that had it was the National Library of Australia. And I got the book from there, and it was written by one of the descendants um, who lives in Hong Kong. It's a prominent family that was founded, the Ho family. Sir Robert Ho Tong was the richest man in China. He was Bruce Lee's great uncle. And once I made these connections, a lot of things became clear about why Bruce was so confident when he came to America. Like he came from a very wealthy, very established family, and so he had a feeling that he carried with him of being something of an aristocrat, and so he didn't come to America feeling like you know a peasant who's just here who's like trying to survive. He came in thinking, "Yes, I should be the biggest star in Hollywood." Like, right. <laughs> and if you if you don't come from a very wealthy, significant family, and you from you would never have that feeling. And so a lot of things became clear about Bruce Lee's ancestry. Also. The other part of his European ancestry is his uh, grandfather had 13 concubines and a secret British mistress, and that was Bruce Lee's grandmother. So Bruce Lee is a quarter English, one-eighth Dutch Jewish, and five five-eighth Han Chinese, which wow. no one knew before.
0: Wow, yeah, I thought that was really incredible. It, interesting what you say, too, about... Bruce Lee coming from that background because a lot of a lot of people even fans of Bruce Lee don't know that he you know was a childhood actor right. that his family was certainly at least upper middle class and uh, like I like I like how you put it he went from third world rich to first world poor right. Right? I thought that was a really fantastic way of describing it but he had that attitude because that's not the normal attitude of even just a, a relatively confident 19 or 18 year old as he was when he came to the states but he definitely had he had something behind him that was certainly different and your your book certainly puts that into perspective um, another thing uh, I wanted to talk about is obviously like you said you you got all the books you looked at all the books and and, and started to thread things together but it's also apparent in your notes you did a fair amount of interviews with people face to face can you talk about maybe one or two of those that stood out in terms of maybe getting information that either you had not heard before or just something that you thought was a little bit off the beaten path maybe or, or, or even just spe- uh, important for your book?
1: Uh, I, probably the two most important interviews for me were Raymond Chow and Betty Ting because one of the things that has never been covered even in all the books that exist is what happened on his last day. Uh, and as any Bruce Lee fan knows, there's a lot of controversy, and there was a there was a big cover-up because they... Well, a lot of people thought there was a big cover-up because there was some secret scandal about how he died, but the scandal was really they were trying to cover up an affair he was having with Betty Ting Pei. Uh, and so in my interview with Raymond Chow, I thought I could come up with a question that would crack this open, <laughs> because for years he's been saying it was just a business meeting, and they were just meeting, and I... So I ask him this question. I say, So, Raymond, why didn't you call the ambulance earlier? And he just laughed at me. And he said, Ha, that's not the first time I've been asked that question. <laughs> and that's when I knew there was no cracking language. Right, out. right. He was going to hold to the story that he's been telling for the last 40 years, and that was it. Um, but interestingly, Betty Tingpei had decided um, by the time I got to her that she wanted to tell what really happened. Um, but she was still extremely nervous about it. And so I had three interview, three interviews with her over a three-day period, probably 16 hours, that I sat next to her, and mostly she wanted to talk about her Buddhism and her beliefs and her own life, but every once in a while, a little nugget would come out about what happened on that last day, and it really felt like panning for gold. Like, I just would wait and wait, and then she would say something like, well, you know, Bruce Lee and I, I was his girlfriend, so... We were alone together. And I was like, <laughs> no one else has said that before. Okay. So um, for me, that sort of opened up one of the great mysteries that remained about Bruce Lee despite all the coverage, which was his last day.
0: Right. Yeah, I think that um, also it's very clear from your book, too, that part of the reason, I think, why there's so much controversy about Bruce Lee's death, just especially, I mean, well, one, he died at 32. That's already a bit suspicious. Right. Is the fact that there was so much cover up around the circumstances of what, let's just say, even if it was an otherwise normal death. But the moment people start to kind of switch some basic facts around, people tend to doubt the whole story in general. Right. Right. And one of them was about the ambulance manifest how, you know, for the first three days, right. the belief was that, you know, Bruce Lee had passed away while walking, you know, in, in his garden at home and, or, or, you know, passed out or fainted and then they sent them there. Of course, we know that that's not the case and I had wondered for a very long time why didn't they just call the ambulance why was there no we're going to call the doctor first and then the paramedics came and then and it didn't really hit me and I wouldn't say I'm an average bruce lee fan perhaps slightly above average it was really in your book where it was like oh yeah of course they they just wanted to hide where he died it wasn't necessarily the circumstance like even putting his clothes on and all these kind of things to make it seem like there was a, a lot of interesting facts that made it, you know, maybe the exact reason is still a little, who knows, like uh, unknown and unknowable, as they right. said. But it's clear that a lot of this so called controversy was just the fact that they were hiding where he died. Yes. Right?
1: That's what I thought was most interesting is that you had on one side, one side saying nothing to see here, and the other side being like the, you know, the triads and the ninjas and the curse killing. Um, and what I realized when I was doing the research, is it started from something very simple. They didn't want Bruce to die, to his death to be recorded in Betty Ting Pei's apartment, because they didn't want any scandal to affect either Enter the Dragon coming out, or to harm Linda's feelings. And so by trying to cover up that one thing, it led to all these repercussions that lasted all these years, and caused all this controversy. When you get down to the basics of it, it makes perfect sense. Raymond Chow was there, Bruce Lee was already dead, and he wanted to get him to a hospital so he could declare that Bruce Lee died somewhere else. And everything they did after that was just that one imperative. And a very simple and understandable one, and not that scandalous when you think about it, but it caused all this controversy because people just knew there wasn't something quite right, but they couldn't figure out what it was. Right.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, and I th- that that was, uh, I think, one of the biggest revelations of the book um, was how you essentially simplified why there's right. all this kind of controversy um what i think is you know perhaps difficult for fans to 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 understand is why bruce had this so-called you know you know he was the as fit as an 18 year old as he said and then there were these two recurring themes essentially on the day he died he he had essentially uh, the same episode that he had had two two months earlier um can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think a lot of people don't realize that this was actually a repeat episode. Yeah. It was just a matter of he just did not get to the doctor in time, yep. you know, the second time.
1: So I spent like six months talking to medical professionals trying to figure out, you know, how to explain Bruce Lee's death because this has been the great mystery. Um, we know he died of a cerebral edema, which means swelling in the brain, but we didn't know what caused it. Um, and various theories have been proposed over the years and one of the key sort of facts is 10 weeks before his death, the same thing happened. He collapses, he nearly dies. The difference is they got him to the hospital on time. And then the second one, they didn't get him to the hospital on time. So that became trying to figure out what could have caused both events was the sort of key clue to, the, to it. Um, my conclusion was that I think it was heat stroke. Um, and, and the reason why is a month before his first collapse, he had the um, <clears throat> he had his armpits, the sweat glands in his armpits, surgically removed, uh, and he had also lost a lot of weight and wasn't sleeping well. Both of which increased the likelihood of heat stroke. And he went into a very tiny dubbing room, and they turned off the air conditioning, and he got dizzy and wobbly and collapsed and had all the signs of heat stroke. And When I was talking with Raymond Chow, one of the great revelations for me was when he said, you know, Bruce Lee was performing a bunch of Kung Fu moves from from Game of Death, and he started to feel dizzy and tired, and that's when he complained of a headache and decided he wanted to lie down, and it struck me that that was very similar to what happened in the first case, and that heat stroke would explain both of them in a way that aspirin allergy just doesn't.
0: Sure. Yeah, I think that was also also a very difficult thing for people to swallow like, you know, in, in in the history of medical science. It seems to be nobody who had died from taking essentially an aspirin or, or ingesting marijuana or whatever. Right. Um, and it seems strange that th- those were then the culprits. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? And so the
1: explanation never made sense, which made people even look harder for more wild conspiracy theories. Um, and <clears throat> I think the, the simple fact was they just didn't consider something that kills a lot of football players, high school football players, die in the summertime of heat stroke. It's a very common killer of uh, young athletic men and you know, he'd lived in Hong Kong a long time but he'd done something that reduced his ability to dissipate heat which was remove uh, the uh, sweat glands. And when you look at that chronology, suddenly it makes a lot more sense.
0: And he did that just for cosmetic purposes, right? He,
1: he did, was, yes. Yeah. He, and and it seems, I don't want to blame him like you're saying, he died because of vanity. <laughs> right. I mean, if you're on a, a huge movie screen with your shirt off, and that's how you make your living, then it's a professional requirement. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but, but, but yes, <laughs> he did it because it didn't look good.
0: Got it. Uh, now, recently, so, so your book is going to come out on June 5th. Yes. Um, and... Uh, there was a review of your book by the Daily Mail of the UK <laughs> and this is how um, in between me meeting you and then having read the book my first interface was reading this pretty scandalous review of your book which seemed to um, in hindsight now that I've read the book really just pick out a couple little pieces and and, and really you know run with it right. um, perhaps the more sensationalistic parts about Bruce Lee's ex- extra, Curricular extramarital activities um so yeah i would like i'll I'll give you the floor here to talk about that
1: (laughs) damn the daily (laughs) mail um i you know i didn't know this was going to happen somehow they got a hold of the book and then people started emailing me friends i'd interviewed and they were like what kind of book did you write and i was like i don't know what you're talking about i went and read it and i started blushing i was like (laughs) who wrote this terrible salacious tell-all book what a jerk Uh, And it turned out it was me. Um, But of course what you realize is if you take everything out, it's a 600 page book and there's maybe six pages that deal with um, his extramarital affairs and they took all of that and stuck it in the top of an article in in a very judgy way. Uh, The truth is Bruce Lee grew up in Hong Kong where um, men were allowed to have concubines he went to Hollywood and worked as an actor during the swing sixties. Steve McQueen was his role model. Having one or two, he was actually pretty conservative by the the standards of that era, and I try to make that clear in the book. Um, <clears throat> but the but the point is, he did have a couple of affairs, and that's part of the story that I wanted to tell about him because I wanted to tell everything. Sure, but you know that's not what the book's about. Right, right. <laughs>
0: um, well, I thought it was interesting. I had you know. Um, obviously, I, I teach Wing Chun. I'm a huge Bruce Lee fan, but um, you know, my love for Bruce Lee has changed. You know, when I was a kid, he was a superhero. Right. As I got older, and I started to realize, you know, that he's human, just like the rest of us. At first, it seemed a little bitter. Okay, he's not quite the perfect superhero I imagined him to be. But as I grow older, I actually appreciate him more, in, in, considering the time period in which he was able to do the things he was able to do, and the short time period he did everything. And I had pretty much read everything there was, but I did not know about Sharon Farrell and that whole story. Uh, okay, right. And so I was like, wow, this is this is very interesting. She see, And she also seemed quite enamored with Bruce Lee, which uh, also uh, was an interesting insight because y- you often hear about these kind of relationships, but um, Betty didn't really want to talk about it too much. You never really hear right. fr- from them what it was like. And she seemed to have a glowing review of Bruce Lee as a... Boyfriend or person like she, yeah. she really quite appreciated him, and uh, I thought that was interesting how she she didn't really dump him for Steve McQueen, but there there was no there was no end there was no end game with the relationship with Bruce right. Lee and had later gone with uh, Steve McQueen. And that at that time Bruce didn't have a pot to pee in. Right? <laughs> she, yeah. she was like, "It wasn't about the money," but he didn't have a pot to pee in. Yeah.
1: I was like, "Maybe it was about the money." Right, 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 right.
0: <laughs> um, it was interesting too. I uh, talked about the connection uh, between Bruce Lee and uh, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, and right. how the um, even at some point uh, Roman Polanski, you know, in in the wake of the death of, of Sharon Tate, kind of suspected everybody, and there was even a brief moment where he thought Bruce Lee might have been. M- might it might have been a suspect in, in in the murder? That I I didn't I had not heard that before.
1: That that I thought was amazing. I was reading Rowan Polanski's biography, and he brings it up there. Uh, and then, unbidden, Linda Lee, when I was interviewing her, mentioned it. She just sort of laughingly said, "And Roman Polanski suspected my husband, as if this was uh, like amazing that this had happened." What had happened is his wife had been horribly murdered in the uh, Manson murders. Uh, and he had, was crazed with grief, and he was certain he was going to find the killer himself. Uh, and one clue he had was someone had left their glasses. One of the murderers had left their glasses at the site. And so he bought, a, a, a measuring device to determine the sort of lens of various glasses. And if he found the right one, he'd know he'd have his killer. This was like the clue he was looking for. And Bruce Lee was his, uh, Jeet Kune Do instructor. And one day they were working out, and Bruce casually says to him, you know, I lost my glasses. <laughs> and At that moment, Roman Polanski's like, oh, my God, maybe it's him. Because Bruce obviously had the technical skills to hurt a bunch of people if he so choose. And I think he probably thought, you know, he was an Asian sort of inside but and also outside this community. And for a moment, he was terrified it might be Bruce. And so Polanski said, well, why don't we go down to the store and i'll buy you a new pair of glasses still thinking it might be bruce and they get to the place bruce puts in his prescription at that moment polanski realizes it's not the same prescription as the guy who left the glasses and is completely relieved but i thought it was wild that bruce had this connection to one of the most horrific murders to ever occur in the u.s that he was he was friends with sharon tate he was Roman polanski's coach and for a a brief moment, Roman Polanski thought he might be the Manson murderer. Right,
0: right. That's interesting. I also remember reading somewhere, I don't know where, and I don't know if you came across, that part of the reason that Bruce left California was because the whole Sharon Tate murder thing kind of freaked him out a little bit. I I remember reading that somewhere, I don't know if you came across that, but obviously he had other reasons for going back to Hong Kong, but I heard that that was a factor. I don't know if you had heard that.
1: I, I think You could make that argument there are bigger factors. Mostly he needed the money um, because he bought a house in Bel Air he couldn't afford. Uh, And he also bought a Porsche because he was trying to keep up with Steve McQueen. Um, And he didn't want to be thought of. He wanted to be thought of as their equal, not as their sort of personal trainer. Uh, And so... Hong Kong gave him an opportunity to make some quick cash and he was going to go for four months and come back. And I thought that was interesting because most of the storyline is he had given up on Hollywood and he went to Hong Kong. He actually initially hadn't given up on Hollywood. He thought he was going to do a quick hit in Hong Kong and come back and then things went so well in Hong Kong that he altered his uh, his plan. But he was absolutely freaked out by the tape murders and... I, it helped me understand some of the criticisms of Bruce later in his Hong Kong years when people like James Coburn said he was paranoid or that he was very protective or that he was worried about his family. And I was like, you know, if two of my best friends had been horribly murdered because they were famous and I suddenly became famous, I would be paranoid too. Sure, sure. And so oh, I think yeah. it, it explained a lot of sort of what was going on in his head when he became an overnight superstar in Hong Kong.
0: Yeah, and that was also another interesting part of the book, too, because um, Bruce... I think people sometimes forget the timeline of Bruce Lee's kind of meteoric rise to superstardom was very, very small. He had moved to Hong Kong... In February of 1972, I think, right? Yeah, it was around there. And and then, you know, passes away in July of 73. So he makes all these movies in in such a very, very short period of time and becomes the biggest star. And there were already problems in this very, very short time um, from him becoming this big superstar. And then his behavior got a little strange in those days. I mean, it's understandable. If you put the average person in a right. similar set of circumstances, it's not to say that you know it was a fault in Bruce Lee. I don't know how many of us could have dealt with Hong Kong in that early time period, be- being such a small and insular place. But certainly in 1973, and it had been reported by a number of people, including Karim Abdul-Jabbar, that he would get random phone calls from Bruce Lee, who was kind of kind of rambling. Um, Bruce was kind of in a strange state. He had pulled a knife on Lo Wei, the director of his first two films, who he famously never got along well with. Um, but pulling a knife on this guy uh, seemed a bit extreme. Um, besides the obvious, he you know he was kind of in that superstar bubble. Um, what what do you think was going on in that kind of fi- let's say that '73? What was going on in that time period that made Bruce go perhaps a bit off the rails in his general behavior so people can understand?
1: I think uh, a couple things were going on. One is the obvious, the just pressures of fame no one can understand until they go through it. And it's universal, so it gets a little cliché, but everyone who goes through it has a period where they act like a jerk. Like, no no, no one gets out of it. And I do think that um, one of my favorite lines, I didn't put in the book, but Sterling Siliphant said, there was nothing wrong with Bruce that a couple of years wouldn't have fixed. And one of the interesting things about writing about someone who dies at 32 is when I think about what I was like at 32, I would hate for that to be the last chapter of my book. <laughs> like, I'm a lot more mature and balanced than I was then, and I think a lot of us have that feeling. And so one of the things I tried to do was to give a sense of why it is someone, he's young, he's really young, and this is all happening really fast. The other thing that I think affected him, though, was he felt like this was his last shot. He really wanted to be a Hollywood star. Things were going so well in Hong Kong, but he was terrified that he, he would miss his break. Uh, and so when Enter the Dragon comes up, a lot of his behavior on set was, I think, related to the fact that he was terrified they were going to take the movie, recut it, and make John Saxon the star. Mm. And he was going to be turned into Cato. And so he gets in fights with the producers, he fires the screenwriter, he yells at people. I I think he was right on the edge of knowing, if I don't get this exactly right, I'm going to be a famous guy in Hong Kong forever, and I'm never going to make it in the big world. And he had seen his fame dissipate after the Green Hornet, and he knew what it was like to have your shot and then have it go away. And I think he was just desperate to make sure it didn't and he stretched himself too thin. And and so the phone calls to people and forgetting things, a lot of people mentioned that, that he would repeat himself. Um, I think he just stretched himself too thin and that is what made him vulnerable in the end to, I think, heat stroke.
0: Interesting, yeah. And also you talk about the, the, pace, the pace scale at Green Hornet. So you know, Bruce was essentially the main co-star. And, yeah. and, and most people, when you just talk about Green Hornet, everyone thinks about Bruce Lee. Right. I mean, he really made that show. But um, when when you, you showed essentially what everyone was making, so Van Williams, who played Green Hornet, was making about $2,000 a week. And Bruce Lee started at 450 Right. Now, that's not like a 20% reduction of what the star is making. Right?
1: I mean, they, when I found that, I was just blown away. And I, I looked at it. For, for days. And when it wasn't just Van Williams because occasionally to get the star they'll overpay the top guy but the secretary was making double. Wendy Wagner was making double what Bruce Lee was and she'd been in like one thing before this. Um, every single person was making double Bruce Lee's salary of the main characters and you, you look at it and you just think to yourself well of course, the Chinese guy gets paid the least. Like, just, right. it's so obvious that this is what's happening. And I had some people try to explain it to me. Oh, no, it was his first Hollywood thing. It's like, no, no, no. I know, We all know what happens. The funny part of that story was um, I was interviewing Linda Lee, and I asked her if she knew. And she's like, no, I had no idea. I go, you didn't know that Van Williams was getting paid five times more than your husband? <laughs> she laughed, and she said, no, I'm going to take that up with Van. And so Bruce went his whole life never knowing wow. of the discrepancy in the salary, and that that I thought was fascinating.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. What what I also liked about um, what you talked about in the early Hong Kong time period, when when essentially Bruce Lee before he came to the states, this is of course of great interest to people who practice Wing Chun and, and who are fans of his martial arts background, because the question was always, well, you know, when did he start learning, and how much did he learn, and um, you you basically put a, a pretty solid timeline on the fact that he started wing chun after he got kicked out of la right which would be around 1956 bruce left in 1959 so that would kind of put him at about three four ish years four stretching. and um but was interesting and i think what what your book also helps to put into perspective because obviously there are tons of Wing Chun people out there, you know, oh, Bruce Lee didn't learn all the Wing Chun and blah, blah, blah. But what's interesting is that particular cut of time in which he did learn Wing Chun was very different from how most of Yip Man's students would have learned. He was kind of thrown to the wolves, you know, pretty shortly after learning with Wong Sun Leung, had a fight with a Charlie Fat guy, yeah. and then later had the boxing match. Yeah. And so... In his relatively short period of time learning Wing Chun, while he may not have learned the so-called advanced technique or whatever, what he did learn, he seemed to have had a little bit of a trial by fire in terms of being able to do it. So he came to the States with only a few years of Wing Chun training, but it seems that that which he had learned, he really could use. And I think that was also really interesting. how did you, I mean, besides, was that through books that you had been able to piece that together, or how were you able to get that, that together?
1: Uh, some of Wang Shun Long's statements helped me with that. Um, and And there were several other sources, because every martial artist likes to tell you they train longer than they did. <laughs> is, right. it, whenever you meet somebody, it's like, ah, oh, I've trained for 40 years, and the guy's 25 years old. <laughs> so uh, I'm always suspicious of any timeline of training, and previously people had said he started when he was 13, yes. um, but it, he wasn't introduced to it until he met um, uh, William Chung, and he didn't meet William Chung until he started at St. Francis Xavier, And when I got that, then I sort of had the time frame. He's basically 16 years old. He leaves at 18 or 19. He didn't start when he was 12 or 13. Right. He was, but before then, and I think this is why he advanced so quickly, uh, he didn't take martial arts for self-defense. He took it for self-offense. He was a street fighter. Um, That's what he liked to do. Um, I grew up, everybody's grown up and knew there was one guy in class who would, pick fights and start them. And that was Bruce Lee. Uh, He didn't pick on people a little older than him. He just had fights with everybody. Uh, And that was just a recurring tale from almost everyone, which was we would go out and then Bruce Lee would get into a fight. We would go out. His gal pals would say it. His friends would say it. Um, And so he had a lot of practical experience before he started Wing Chung. And and he picked it up because um, he met William Chung and William Chung was better than him. And he was trying to figure out, how can I be better than this guy? I don't like the fact that this guy's a better fighter than me. And he was like, oh, he studies Wing Chun. I'll go study Wing Chun, and one day I'll be better than him. And one of my favorite stories Wang Chun Long tells, where it's about the third time they've had a class together, and Bruce just looks him dead in the face and goes, when am I going to be better than you? (laughs) (laughs) And Wang Chun Long says, and kind of the translation is, he asked too much. And, And you could just feel that sense of you're teaching some little punk 15, 16 year old and the guy's like when can I kick your ass? Right, <laughs> right, right.
0: right. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was great. Um, you know, how he went back to the States thinking he was the number six guy and he wanted to be the number one guy and how this was constantly in his mind and then um, how later, I think it was either on the set of uh, Enter the Dragon or Game of Death maybe where he had another meeting with Wong zun yeah, and then they kind of had a comparison again, and it was interesting. Uh, you talk about uh, Wang Kam Long, Wang Kam Leung being Wong Chong Leung's student who was there to witness that. Yeah. I'm actually uh, friends with uh, Wang Kam Leung, uh, yeah. great guy. Met him. Yeah. Well, um, did, did he tell you that story? Interesting, because
1: I, 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 someone I didn't know who he was, mm-hmm. and someone said you need to talk to this guy, and I was like, all right, whatever. And someone said, and then I realized, oh, he's Wong Chong Long's student, and then I figured he would tell me sort of Wong Chong Long's version. Yes. And when I asked him what happened at the fight, he just laughed. And he was like, it's a good thing my master was wearing long-sleeved shirts. Because when he was done, his arms were completely bruised. <laughs> and I said, what do you think would have happened? he goes, well, if it had been for real, Bruce Lee would have won. Because his kicks were so powerful. And when you hear it from the student of the master, that's that's as good as gold, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, so he did eventually uh, best his master What I thought was fascinating is Bruce Lee was the kind of guy who would spend his whole life thinking about the fact that when he was 16, he wasn't as good as his teacher. And gosh darn it, he was going to be better than his teacher. He's the world's biggest superstar in Southeast Asia. He still makes time to make sure that he can have a comparison where he's going to show his teacher, hey, I'm a little better than him. And that competitiveness um, is, I think, annoying to a lot of people who knew him. Um, but that's what made him a superstar that kind of ambition and competitiveness it, it, It's when I would read that I was like that's a fighter Sure, and it, you know you met people some people are great martial artists, but they're not fighters yeah. in their heart right. And Bruce Lee had was had a fighter's heart like when he saw something and someone was better than him All he could think about was how to be better than that guy
0: Yeah, um, yeah, I thought that would that was uh, interesting On you know, For Wing Chun people, there's always a bit of a controversy in terms of whether Bruce Lee created Jeet Kune Do because at some point he realized he wasn't going to be able to either be the top guy in Wing Chun or wasn't going to be able to completely learn the system from his Sifu because he was not in Hong Kong anymore, or whether he really created Jeet Kune Do because he felt that there was limitation in traditional martial arts. So if you ask the Wing Chun people in Hong Kong, they will kind of wag their finger and say... You Oh, know, that's because he, he didn't have access to learn the whole system, so of course he wants to be the number one guy, so he creates his own style so no one can criticize him. And then you ask his American students, and they're like, Oh, no, he sold imitation in the <laughs> traditional martial <laughs> arts and sure. stuff. And, of course, I always feel that the answer yeah, probably maybe somewhere a little bit in the middle. Yeah. Um, did you... Uh, Do you have any opinion on that one way or another in terms of all your research?
1: What I think was interesting uh, for me was he writes a letter to Wang Shunlong when he's about to come back and essentially fesses up and confesses to what he's done. Um, Which means that he was super sensitive about what it would mean to create his own style. And that he in his own heart felt that he had made a break. Uh, I think it was a little bit of both. It's absolutely true that when he got to the States there was no uh, not one single Wing Chun guy he could study with and so he either, when he first started he thought he would create he would gather stuff from uh Yun Fat, uh, Ch- Fat sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yun Fat that other, one, that other <laughs> stuff other uh, style. he wanted to create a super Chinese system uh, and then he started toying around with Judo and he, he became interested in pugilism boxing, western boxing And he he sort of absorbed things that were around him, and all of his students were American guys of different ethnicities who had sort of Western martial arts or combat sports backgrounds. And I think that's why he got into it, and it just sort of influenced him to the point where he started toying with things that were different. If he had stayed in Hong Kong, he would have been the world's best Wing Chun guy with a couple different things. I think Bruce Lee was really the kind of guy who adapted to his environment. That was his whole philosophy. Uh, and, and if he'd gone to Russia, he'd be the world's best Sambo guy. Yes. He went to America, so he picked up judo and boxing, and his brother was in defencing, and that's what he used to create his own system. I don't think he'd have ever been satisfied with one system, and it wouldn't have mattered what the style was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he had a real respect for Wing Chun and a real uh, respect for Ip Man, uh, and so a lot of that I think gets blown up by the students who like the controversy afterwards. Yes, because yes. Because he was very devoted to Ip Man, and he, he was very careful with Wang Chun Long to say, I'm doing a little more practical things, but what you taught me is so important. Right. And so he he never in his own life tried to be like, oh, Wing Chun's no good. I've got the greatest thing. Um, but he, he experimented with what he had around him.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's a couple more things uh, on that same vein. Uh, and not to harp on you know his death or his funeral, because sure. the book is a lot more than that. Um, but there there is also the Wing Chun controversy about him not attending his Sifu's funeral. Yes. And I always found this a very, very strange story. Because I don't know why, under any normal circumstances, he wouldn't have gone. And um, you talk about there being, you know, he was left a little bit in the dark by his uh, Wing Chun brothers and sisters not wanting him to go there, essentially, in kind of a ploy maybe to kind of get back at him and make him lose face. I know I, I know from, you know, the Hong Kong side of things sure. um, that there was one Sifu in particular who tipped off the press like, hey, do you see who's not here today? And kind of started that. Um, what was interesting is that, you know, you mentioned, you know, this, uh, one of the sons of Yip Man, you know, thinking about getting on the horn to call Bruce and then deciding or being told by somebody not to do it. The, I guess I suppose the only issue I have with that is that really there was like nobody who had told him like, and even Wong Sun Lung kind of chastised him. It's like, well, why didn't you tell him? Like, I, I was still a little curious. I mean, um do do you do, do you really believe that they left him out in the dark or do you believe there might have been another reason or I mean it's it's sure. difficult to say I don't know why he would have not gone I mean
1: uh, I can't see he was smart enough to know it would have hurt his reputation not right. to go so even if he didn't care about Yipman, which he clearly did because he met with him a couple months earlier to kind of quell the controversy um, he would have showed up for that event because unlike when James Lee died in the states and he didn't go to that funeral um, that would have required leaving and all these things. It wouldn't have required anything to zip over in some you know chauffeured car for that event. Um, it, Paul Lee wrote the best uh, Hong Kong or Chinese language biography of Bruce Lee, uh, and so I relied a lot on his reporting on that subject. Uh, and his assessment was that Bruce Lee didn't know that the funeral happened until after it did. Um, and and that the the some of the students specifically didn't want to tell him because they were jealous of him partly but but also he had said some critical things about traditional martial arts not specifically wing chung but he was going around bragging that his system was great and bruce was a bragger and it annoyed some people particularly in hong kong that he this americanized guy who so-called created his own style and was now a big superstar was running down traditional martial arts. And so there was a real kind of rivalry there.
0: Yeah, and I think um, w- one of the things that when I read your book, I kind of, you know, I felt that uh, it was kind of, a, obviously it's sad that he passed away so young. And um, and right at the that point where his career was really going to take this huge upturn, and he had finally been able to surpass Steve McQueen, you know, the Enter the Dragon had I think Enter the Dragon was the number 2 film of 1973 second only to The Exorcist. That's
1: right. And The Exorcist was made for 11 million dollars. <laughs> Enter the Dragon was made for
0: 850,000. Wow. <laughs> um, but I I thought what was interesting is a, about a week after Bruce Lee had died, he was booked to do the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Yep. And I'm just thinking now, you know, with 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 things like YouTube um, can you imagine if you could go on YouTube now and there would be like Bruce Lee on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson? If you just had that as a clip, it, it would be it would be amazing. It's like it's it, to think of also of what could have been. Right. Um, I you just I, I I can imagine how that might have been one of those moments in Bruce Lee's career when he's on Johnny Carson where he realizes that he had finally made it, yeah. and it's also uh, I, I suppose bittersweet too that Brandon did make it to the tonight show with, with Jay Leno a number That's of right. years later and then shortly after that passed away it's very right. very interesting um I suppose before we wrap it up here you know if there's anything else you you might want to say what you what you got out of writing this book that maybe you didn't expect when you had first got into it
1: I didn't realize how hard it was for Bruce Lee to do what he did Uh, I knew he was a great martial artist. I knew he had trained himself incredibly hard. I knew all the stories about that, but to become the first uh, Asian American male to star in a Hollywood movie since the advent of sound was unprecedented, and the reason we know it is is because it took 25 years for someone to do it again, Jackie Chan with Rush Hour. It's just almost impossible to be an Asian male and get a lead role in a Hollywood movie. How many movies have there been, and how many starring roles have there been for Asian men? Sure. And so, going through each step of the process, particularly the period where the silent flute is falling apart, and there was just something about Bruce that would not give up, and that part really affected me, because... This book took, like, seven years, and during that process, you know, the advance money they pay you at the beginning runs out. <laughs> and my, my imprint went down, and my editor got fired, and I was in the middle of it being like, this is my own silent flute. I don't know if this book is ever going to get published, and I've already invested four years in it, and I'm broke, and... and Bruce Lee's broke in Bel Air, and so I started to like, actually feel physically like, what it must have felt like to be like, I can't pay the mortgage, I've got a new kid, I, my son was born during this book, uh, my father died, like Bruce's father died, and so I, I started to really identify with him, almost like an actor playing the part, getting in his head, and I just thought, my God, how did he not at any point just go, you know what, this is impossible, I'm giving this up and doing something else. And he never did, and that's the reason why he's an icon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, this was really great. I really appreciate you coming down and taking the time. Hope to do it again sometime. Maybe have another. We can go to Dim Sum and chat a little bit more about awesome. Bruce Lee off the record. It would be really great. And uh, look forward to doing it again. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.